This is our last look at David. And uh, a few months ago when Simon and I were talking about this sermon series, I suggested this last one, David and Jesus, because it seemed like like quite a pious way, you know, to wrap up the story of David. Let's talk about David and Jesus. But what I wasn't counting on was that I would get this sermon. I thought at least someone else would get this title and, um, you know, and I wouldn't have to do it. So I got it. And um, the more I got into looking at what to say, the more actually this turned out to be really complicated um, and not straightforward at all. So just to recap what we've been doing the last few weeks, we've looked at David from some different angles and in terms of his different relationships. And we looked at David in his interactions with Samuel, with Saul and with Jonathan, his conflict with Goliath and his big mistake with Bathsheba. And today I'm going to try and make sense of David in terms of Jesus. And I think where this will end up is that we will look at how David's kingship sets the stage for the conversion of the nations and the ultimate rule and reign of the great king, Jesus Christ. But along the way, in order to get there, we're going to have to look actually at the thing that David didn't do, which was build the temple. So I don't know about you, when I first became a Christian and began reading the Bible, I was a teenager, and I was strongly advised by the people in the church that I started going to, to start reading the Bible with the New Testament, not the Old. And so you start the New Testament, and the beginning of the New Testament is the Gospels, and one of the first things that you notice in the Gospels is that people are calling Jesus the son of David. And this happens when, Jesus, when people call out to Jesus in the street. Um, in Matthew 9, there are two blind men that call out to Jesus and they want him to heal them. And they, and they say, have mercy on us, son of David. And the same thing happens with blind Bartimaeus in Jericho. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then when the Syrophoenician woman, who's not a Jew, is arguing with Jesus about why he should heal her daughter... She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. And then there's another instance where Jesus healed a demonized man who was blind and mute so that he then spoke and saw. And then all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So from these verses, and actually there are loads more, I've just mentioned a few, We can see that in the excitement generated around the appearance of Jesus and his ministry, people were either asking the question, is this the son of David? Or else they were just going all out and saying, this is the son of David. Because it was so obvious to everybody who he was. Um, And then another example would be the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. And this account is in each four of the Gospels, where the people cry out as Jesus comes into the city, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So there was something about Jesus and something about his miracles and his ministry that raised people's hopes and led them to identify him with David in this way. So what is this about? What, why is this identification of Jesus with, with um, David? Well, actually, Jesus himself posed this question one day. One day he was in the temple And he was teaching and he said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus says, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? So Jesus was quoting Psalm 110, which uh, probably, as you all know, is the most frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's in the Gospels, and it's in the letters, and it's in Acts. Everybody in the New Testament is talking about and quoting Psalm 110. Um, now, that is a very popular psalm because it does speak. The Jews recognize that Psalm 110 talks about the Messiah, the, the one that the Jews were expecting to come, a ruler who would be like David, and he would sit on David's throne, which means that they expected him to appear in Israel and rule from Jerusalem. And he would deal with God's enemies in the way that David had dealt with the Philistines, the Moabites, the Amalekites, and all the others. And that as a result of that, he would usher in an era of peace and prosperity. And in the Acts of the Apostles, we also see the disciples and the apostles referring often to this connection between Jesus and David. So when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, um, he said, God had sworn with an oath to him, David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. And then in Acts 13, when Paul is preaching, when he and Barnabas first arrived in Antioch, Paul went into the synagogue and he said to the Jews that he told the story of Israel. Okay, He told them the story that they all knew. Um, and he said, God had given Saul to be the king of Israel, but that when he removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do my will, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. So we can see from these passages that the Messiah, or the promised ruler, was to be the son of David, and he was in many ways to be like David. But why the son of David in particular? Because there were loads of kings, right? There were loads of kings, and Solomon in many ways was a more glorious king than David. But what was it about David that was different from the other kings of Israel and Judah, and how was it that David pointed to Jesus? So, this is where I kind of think I want you to bear with me while I go where I'm going to go with this. But I think to understand this, we have to begin with God's promise to David when he became king of the two kingdoms. So if you remember, when David became king, that is when Saul and Jonathan died, David was about 30 years old. And then he became king of the tribe of Judah. That was his tribe. The other tribes, the tribes, the other tribes of Israel... They went their own way for another seven years before coming to David and asking him to be their king. So David united the whole kingdom. And then what he did was then he fought some more battles um, and he finally subdued all the enemies. And then the last thing that he did was that he captured Jerusalem from um, a Canaanite tribe called the Jebusites. And when he had captured Jerusalem, what he did was he brought the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. And the reason for that was that he wanted to build a house for God. And it's at that point that God stopped him and said, actually, you're not going to do it, David. I do appreciate it. God said to him, look, I, I love and appreciate what you've done and what you want to do, but you're not going to do it. Your son is going to do it after you, after you. And then after God said that to David, 
um, God spoke to David through the prophet Nathan. And he says, God says to David, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God gave a promise to David that his throne and his kingdom would be established forever. Now, when later, 400, 500 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and the people were exiled from the land, the kingship ended. And then after um, after the people came back from exile from Babylon, if there were kings, they were not kings from David's line or else actually they were even like Herod for example they were foreigners they were Edomites so their kingship ended so at about the time that Jesus appeared the people were waiting for somebody descended from David to appear and again this was reinforced by more Old Testament prophecy so that Jacob when Jacob was about to die if you remember at the end of Genesis he prophesied to each one of his sons And when he got to Judah, Judah was the fourth son of Jacob, he said the scepter, the scepter being a rod of sort of authority to rule, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now this one, he to whom it belongs, or in other translations, He whose right it is, this is the one that the people were waiting for from the tribe of Judah. So the expectation among the people was that David's son, in other words, someone from Judah, and a king like David would appear. And this is why Jesus' miracles and his teaching, they got people thinking, surely this must be the the, the Messiah. And, And it was so obvious that Jesus was the Messiah to many people that they called him the son of David. Now... In Deuteronomy, in the old, back, back in the beginning of the Old Testament, God had said to Moses that there would eventually be a place for the Lord to dwell. Now, we know that God doesn't dwell in one place, okay? So this is figurative language. But God said this to Moses, that eventually there would be a permanent place where God lived. And David, because David was a prophet, he understood somehow that he was the one who'd been called to build it. And he understood also that it would be built in Jerusalem. So when David consolidated the kingdom, as we just saw, he brought the Ark of, Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and he built a tent for it there. And when he was about to die and he was going to give this commission to Solomon, he said, the Lord, the God of Israel, has given rest to his people and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. Now, why Jerusalem? The importance of Jerusalem was that Mount Zion, or its other name is Mount Moriah, which is a hill in Jerusalem, was there. Okay? And this was the spot where Abraham had tried to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to God. And this was also the city of Melchizedek. Has anybody heard of, heard of Melchizedek? Okay, a few people. Melchizedek was this very mysterious Old Testament figure who, who blessed Abraham. And he lived in a place called Salem, which is Jerusalem. And he came out and he he was a priest king. And the book of Hebrews talks about 
Melchizedek as well. We don't know who Melchizedek was. Some people think Melchizedek was Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Let's not go there. Melchizedek was a mysterious person who represented God and he blessed Abraham. But he was from this same spot. And actually, this spot in Jerusalem was also a spot where David, where the Lord appeared to David as well. And I'm going to just explain that. At the end of David's life, if you go to the very end of 2 Samuel, David tried, he decided he was going to count everybody in Israel. And um, this is always a bad idea. This is, this is a thing in the Old Testament. Don't count the people, okay? And Joab, the commander of the army, who was actually not even a very good guy, begged David not to do it. He said, please don't do it. This is not what you should be doing. But David went ahead and he counted everybody and he, he sort of called for a census. And, and what this was doing was that in, do, in counting the people, what it was implicitly was David was putting his trust in the number of men that could go into the army. Okay, so he was, he was trusting in the numbers, trusting in the size of the army, rather than trusting in God who delivers. And if you remember Gideon, Gideon, the Lord told him to reduce his army and reduce it and reduce it until he only had 200 men left. Or was it 600? I can't remember. 200. And then with a very small number of people, God gave Gideon the victory. Okay, so God likes to show us that he can work in an impossible situation. That's what he does. And um, so David, in, in counting the people and putting his trust in the number of the army or the potential number of men in the army, David was actually going against his own experience and his own knowledge of God. And so God was angry with David again, okay? <laughs> this happens a lot. And, uh, you know, David, to his credit, he's always the one who repents. But the Lord said, look... I am going to punish you for doing this, and I'm going to give you three choices. I'm going to give you three choices of, of punishment. You can have three years of famine, or you can have three months of running away from your enemies, or you can have three days of pestilence or plague. And David, wisely, he chose the plague, and his reasoning was, it is better to fall into the hands of God than the hands of men or people, because God is more merciful than people are. So I choose to fall into God's hands, in other words, have a sickness happen, than be subject to the cruelty of other people. But 70,000 people died in this plague in three days. And on the third day, David saw the angel of the Lord at the threshing floor of a man called Arauna the Jebusite in Jerusalem, which also happened to be the top of Mount Moriah, which also happened to be the exact spot where Abraham had uh, wanted or been told to sacrifice Isaac and where God had provided a substitute for Isaac. Okay, God, if you remember, Abraham was about to kill Isaac because God had told him to do it and at the last minute the angel says, Abraham, don't do it. And then uh, they notice that a ram is caught in a bush and so they sacrifice the ram in place of the son, if you like. And so when David saw the angel, when David saw the angel at this threshing floor, he said, behold, I have sinned and have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So on this spot, which was also where the temple was going to be built, David offered himself to die in place of the people. Now, Adrian reminded me yesterday when we were talking about this 
that David prefigured Jesus in that David, just like Jesus, was a priest. Sorry, that just like Jesus, he was a priest, a prophet, and a king. Okay, we say that about Jesus, priest, prophet, and king. But David wasn't an official priest because he was from the wrong tribe. He was from the tribe of Judah. And the priesthood was with the tribe of Levi. Okay, so David couldn't be a priest. But in this instance of offering himself in place of the others, to die in place of the others, he was actually acting like a priest. A priest is a mediator, someone who stands between the people and God, and if necessary, if needs be, dies in place of the people. So David did this. And it's also worth mentioning that Jesus, uh, who also did that, who's also the ultimate high priest, who dies on our behalf also as David's descendant, was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Judah. So, again, the ultimate priesthood is with Jesus from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi, and David pointed to that. So, David understood that in all this and through all this, um, even after freeing Israel from all her enemies, the most important thing that he could do, the most important calling that he had, was to build the temple. And then, having reached that sort of place of awareness, God told him that he, he's not the one that's going to do it. So for David, the temple was a really big deal. And, and really, there is no other way of describing it. It was a big deal. The temple actually was supposed to be the center of the world. It was supposed to be the point on the planet where everybody would come and worship the true God. And, and this is actually where I think um, the most important... I, this is where I came to in this quite difficult sermon um, when I was preparing for it. I think this is where we come to um, as the most important connection between Jesus and David. So I'm just going to say a little bit about the temple. So the temple, or the tabernacle, both of them, is a, a little model of the mountain of the Lord. Okay, it's, in a way, it's a model of the world. Um, and within the temple is the holiest place, which is the point where heaven and earth meet. Okay, if you remember, the Garden of Eden was on a mountain, and at the top where the garden was, that's where heaven and earth met. That's where the presence of God was, and that's where people lived. Okay, now inside the temple and the tabernacle was a lot of garden imagery. Um, if, you, if you do read carefully, uh, you know, Exodus and whatever, and I do recommend it, um, the inside was made of wood overlaid with gold, but the wood was carved with palm trees and flowers, and it was garden-like. And it was gold. Gold was overlaid because the gold is about the glory of God, so it's a glorious garden. And, um, you know, the lampstand, the menorah, the Jewish menorah, the seven, the lampstand with seven sort of, um, you know, you've seen it, seven little uh, candlestick, you know, you could put seven um, wicks in it, basically, seven lights. This is a little representation of the tree of life, okay? The tree of life is in the garden. Um, and there's other imagery. The, the ark itself is God's footstool. The ark was quite a small box, only about this big, and there were two golden cherubim on top of the ark, and we know from passages in the Old Testament that God, God dwells above the cherubim, Okay, so his feet are on the ark. God's feet were on the ark. And, um, but the problem with the temple and the tabernacle um, is that only one person could go in to the holiest place once a year. And that was when the high priest would go in and enter literally for a few minutes on the Day of Atonement. And he would sprinkle a little bit of blood on the top of the ark, on the mercy seat on the ark. And so 
People back then who were paying attention would have understood that this was not God's ultimate plan. Okay, It pointed to something else. Because what use is it if only one man, you know, a man, not a woman, if only one man can go into God's presence once a year for a few minutes? That's not a restoration. That's not a restoration of what God had for us in the beginning. So those who were paying attention would have understood that the temple uh, and the temple system was pointing to something else, that it, it, it was not itself the end goal. Um, but the problem, the problem when Jesus showed up is that lots of the religious people and, the, and lots of the people, but especially the leaders, they had kind of identified the temple and the system of the temple with their faith, and that, that was what they loved the most, okay? And they had turned it into a kind of an idol, if you like. Um, <clears throat> and, and of course, we don't do that, do we? We don't turn our buildings into idols. We don't turn our church services and our rituals into idols because we're much better than that, of course. But when, so when Jesus showed up, when Jesus showed up and he said, you know, he said in the temple, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. You know, people just sort of, they lost the plot. You know, they went bananas with rage because he was touching the thing that was, um, you know, the most important to them and that was the center of their system and their life. But because the temple system could not solve the problem of sin and separation from God, the temple had to be done away with, Okay. And it could only be done away with by Jesus offering himself up and opening the kingdom of God to the whole world. And as we know, when Jesus died, the moment he died, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, that is the place where the, uh, the, uh, the altar was from where the ark was, um, this curtain was kind of spontaneously torn apart supernaturally, signifying that now there is going to be access to everyone Everyone in the world now is going to have access to the presence of God. And because of this, the true temple of God could be established. And the true temple of God is men and women from every linguistic and ethnic group in the world. Okay? Each one, each one of us that is a follower of Christ is now a stone of the new temple. Okay? This is figurative. Okay? But this is the language the New Testament uses. And each one of us functions now as a priest to the nations of the world. And so Peter, in his first letter, says, You yourselves are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the new temple is Jesus' body, and it's made up of living stones, us. And we are living stones that are arranged around the king, doing the will of God. And so building that new living temple, that is what Jesus is doing now in the world. Um, and I think at this point I need to mention, we need to be, we need to be um, careful. We don't get confused. The responsible for building the church is Jesus' responsibility. Um, David, he knew and understood this. He didn't get it at first, but he eventually he did. David wanted to build the temple, but God told him through Nathan the prophet that he wasn't going to do it. And just in the same way that Moses didn't enter the promised land, Moses was allowed to go up on a mountain and look down into the promised land, but Moses never crossed the Jordan, and he died before they possessed the promise. So um, David was the one who wanted to build the temple, but God wouldn't let him. Now David accepted this because God had taught him to wait on God. 
David had had several, if you remember, we talked about this over the last few weeks, David had had several opportunities to take the kingdom by force from Saul. And these opportunities, as they came up, they began to look so obvious. They began to look so obviously as from God that everybody around David thought David was crazy because it seemed that God had given Saul into David's hands and it was like a God thing. But David said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to kill Saul until God shows me that my time to become king is ready. So David had learned to wait on God. Now, Adam and Saul had both been impatient, okay? They had seized what was forbidden. In Adam's case, we know it was the forbidden fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Saul's case, there's the example when when the Philistines were drawing up for battle and it was getting scary, but they knew that they couldn't fight until the sacrifice was made and they were waiting for the prophet Samuel to come. Saul got stressed out because Samuel was late and he didn't know where he was. And so Saul grabbed the sacrifice and he made the sacrifice. Okay, so he wasn't, he wasn't a Levite. He wasn't permitted to do that. He, he reached out and took and did something that he wasn't permitted to do. And he did that out of expediency because he was stressed. Um, but both of these things were forbidden. David learned patience. He learned that God did not want him to take the kingdom from Saul prematurely. He learned to submit to God's will, and this meant he was able to accept that he was not going to be the one who who built the temple. And in the same way, we can say that Jesus was similar because there were many things that Jesus could have done. You know, if you remember at the the start of the book of Acts when Peter and John heal a guy, I I remember hearing as a young Christian sermons on this that there was a, a, a a, a, a crippled guy by the temple, Jesus would have walked past that, day, that guy every day, and he didn't heal him. And yet, later, Peter and John healed him. So Jesus didn't do everything that he could do. And we know from John's gospel that Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. Okay? Jesus was submitted to the Father. He didn't, he didn't presume to use his own power to do things. He waited on God. Ultimately, for Jesus, this meant doing the thing that he didn't want to do, which was die on the cross, but he did it because that's what God wanted him to do. So in the same way, we as Christians, we have to avoid this sin of presumption and we have to recognize that we cannot force things, okay? We cannot force things. We can't force people to believe or become Christians. Um, uh, We can't force the church to grow, okay, in our own strength. Um, In in many ways, we have to leave that to Jesus, okay? Okay. one problem that we're seeing with lots of scandals that are coming out at the moment is that there are many people out there who want to use the church. They, want to, they see in the church a vehicle for their own ego, for their own agenda. And so there are people out there who use and exploit churches for their own ends. Okay? Now, Jesus had said to Peter, I will build my church. And we don't have to focus on that aspect of building the church because Jesus will build it and he is building it. Our job is to seek the kingdom. That's what we've been commanded to do. We have to seek the kingdom, and the church is going to take care of itself because Jesus is in charge of it. And as he said to Peter, I'm going to build it, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. So what does the life of David tell us about how we can live and function as God's temple? So the lesson of 1 Samuel 
the whole, the whole book, is that the kingdom is only really a true kingdom. And it can only be maintained as the true kingdom when God is the king. Okay, when God is the king of kings. And because Saul had not obeyed the king of kings and had ruled on his own terms, he had to be replaced. Saul had had three opportunities to obey God and he failed each test. And when he failed the test, he, he often made excuses. He blamed other people. And, and, and that, when I was reading that, it put me in mind of Adam. You know, something that Rainer and I are often joking about is that, um, you know, Adam said to God, you know, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. <laughs> um, and that, you know, especially in marriage, it can be, um, you can be easy to uh, try and avoid responsibility when you mess up, and I mess up all the time. Um, but Adam tried to blame the woman, which is really a way of blaming God, and Saul, actually, by blaming others, was actually blaming God. Now, so that is why God replaced Saul with a man after his own heart. And so this meant that whenever David sinned, David owned his sin, and he took full responsibility for what he had done. And this happens quite a few times with David, if you read 1 and 2 Samuel. Um, David's sins and Saul's sins are actually not that different. If we're honest, they're not that different. But the difference is that every time David repented and he took responsibility and every time when Saul sinned, he made excuses and he blamed others. And I think for us as leaders, this is a, a very important lesson that we have to take on board, whether we're church leaders or we're leaders at home or we're leaders at work or we're leaders in whatever leaders or representatives in whatever sphere of life that God has placed us in we have to take responsibility Jesus like David took responsibility of course the difference between David and Jesus was that Jesus hadn't sinned but Jesus went to the next level by taking responsibility for things that other people had done okay and bore the penalty for our sins now secondly when the king is a giant killer, everybody is a giant killer. So when Goliath appeared in the line of the Philistine army, everybody was terrified, and especially Saul. And Saul's attitude seems to be, he's a giant. I mean, what do you expect me to do? Okay? But David, this little teenager, comes up, and he took, and he took, he took on Goliath. Now, if we go back to when Adam and Eve, you know, made their big mistake. What did God say to the snake? Okay, he talked to the snake. He, he, God addressed each one of them, each one of the three of them. But he spoke to the snake first. And um, he promised the snake. Um, sorry. Yeah, God promised the snake that the seed of Eve, the seed of the woman would crush his head. Now, we know that that seed is Jesus. But David, as an ancestor of Jesus, was also that seed. He was a little seed of the big seed. And so when David, the seed of the woman, went out to face Goliath, Goliath was wearing this scale armor, okay? Puts you in mind of a snake. David crushed Goliath's head with a small stone. And then all of a sudden, when that happened, the whole army found courage and they all charged and attacked the Philistines. And... Um, What's interesting is that at the end of David's life, David's mighty men, there's a small bit at the end, of, uh, the end of the book of 2 Samuel where it mentions that David's mighty men killed four more giants. 
So why hadn't these men, who were capable of killing giants, why had one of them not killed Goliath at the time? Well, I think the reason is that because Saul was not a giant killer, nobody under Saul could be a giant killer either. And so just as Jesus, who is the seed of the woman, crushed Satan's head and has delivered us from sin and death, so David, the little seed, could also crush the head of Satan's representative, who was Goliath. And because David killed Goliath, all the other people then acquired faith and courage to kill giants too. So if David, if the king is a giant killer, everyone is a giant killer. And we say the same for Jesus, okay? Jesus has overcome Satan and sin and death, and Jesus crushed Satan's head at the cross. And because of that, he's given us the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we can now overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the, and the thing that we can fulfill is the Great Commission. That's what Jesus has saved us to do, to fulfill the Great Commission, to disciple all the nations. Because Jesus has dealt Satan a mortal wound, we are free now. We can operate against Satan and his kingdom. And another way of putting it is to say that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has bound the strong man. And now, because the strong man has been bound, we can plunder the strong man's house, which is the nations. Okay, It's the rest of the world. And the result of this is going to be what's described in Psalm 87. And I encourage you to look at this because Psalm 87 describes the city of Zion, the true city of Zion, the mountain of the Lord, okay, the presence of God in the midst uh, of the temple made up of living stones. And what it describes, um, for those of you that know the Old Testament, um, Psalm 87 describes the people of God as actually the traditional enemies of God. So the Philistines, Babylon, and Tyre. These are all the arch enemies of Israel in the Old Testament, and yet Psalm 87 describes them as the people of God. Okay, That is the ultimate reality that we're going to work towards, that even those people that are the most opposed to God are going to give in and come to Jesus and be saved. And so there's just one more thing to mention in relation to all of this. At the Council of Jerusalem in uh, Acts chapter 15, um, what had happened was that Paul and Barnabas had been preaching to the Gentiles. Actually, they had been preaching to Jews, but everywhere they went, they started leading Gentiles to faith. And um, there was a big question about, what do we do with these Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to become Jews? Like, they didn't know what to do. And Paul and Barnabas showed, and, and Peter had actually, earlier in the story, Peter had also witnessed the same thing, that God was giving the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, and they, and they, weren't, being, they weren't having to become Jews first. And so when Paul and Barnabas had told the story of what happened, um, James, who was kind of the leader, stood up and he quoted the prophet Amos, and he said, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes known these things from of old. And so the council concluded that they shouldn't place any impediment or hindrance um, in front of the Gentiles that would stop them coming to faith by making them become Jews first. Um, now, what does this have to do with the tabernacle of David? This is an interesting but a slightly mysterious thing. The tabernacle of David had been the tent that David put the ark in when he, got, when he brought it up to Jerusalem. Okay, 
But it wasn't actually the real tabernacle, the tabernacle of Moses. Um, because that was actually in a different place. That was in a place called Gibeon. So if you remember that when, Samuel, when the prophet Samuel was a little kid, when he was still about four, or I don't know, five or six, when God spoke, first spoke to him, the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines and they took it away to their cities. And because the hand of God was against them, they sent it back. They said, we don't want anything to do with this. Let's send it back, okay? And they sent it back to Israel. And, um, but the Ark was never put back into the tabernacle. The Ark stayed at someone's house. And for years on end, for decades, and then and, uh, it moved around a little bit, but eventually David brought it into the temple. Sorry. He brought it up to Jerusalem, and he put it in a new tent, okay, a different tent. And it wasn't until much later when the temple was built that the ark and the tabernacle were reunited. But, of course, the temple was then built, and what they probably did was they folded up and put the tabernacle away, and they put it into one of the storerooms in the temple, okay? But the ark and the, and, the, and the tabernacle of Moses were separate. Now, why did the prophets talk about the tabernacle of David? The thing about the tabernacle of David was that it wasn't like the tabernacle which had this division inside it. The tabernacle of David was a simple tent and the ark was inside it. And somehow the prophets understood that this open tent was a metaphor for the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God. So that when Paul and Barnabas reported what had been happening among the non-Jews, James, quoting Amos, he saw this as the fulfillment that David's tabernacle was being built. Now the thing about the tabernacle, or a tabernacle, is that it's a tent, it's mobile, as opposed to a temple which is fixed. But let's just think about this. What this means is that now, if David's tabernacle was being rebuilt, instead of the nations coming to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, the presence of God, symbolized by this mobile tent that is open to everybody, goes out to where the people are. Okay? And there's another incredible verse about this in Isaiah chapter 16, where it says, Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit in faithfulness, in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So David was the king after God's own heart, who began to have a vision of what God would do to bring the nations into his kingdom. David's kingship was self-sacrificial and priestly, like Jesus' priestly kingship. And David's prophetic vision of the kingdom of God pointed the people to the king whose mobile throne is established in steadfast love and which goes out into the whole world to call everybody home to God and to restore all things.